Good afternoon. My name is Chad Mary. I'm uh, one of the student workers here at Inspire. And as Mark mentioned, we are beginning a new series um, for the summer month of August. And it's, the focus is reconnecting with God. And he mentioned that as you're on holiday, it's easy to think it's, it's a break from, from life, right, in general. But we don't want that to be the case as we go on holiday, take a break from our relationship with God. Um, and so we're going to look at what does that mean to reconnect with God in prayer? And that's the focus of today's message. So maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And maybe you're asking the question, what does that even mean to connect with God? Um, or, you know, as we look at this passage through uh, that Paul is preaching, I think we'll get an idea of what prayer looks like. And that is actually one way that we can connect with God. Uh, or maybe you're, you're here and you haven't been to church in a long time. And you're looking for that opportunity that you, you feel the need, that I actually feel the need. I need to reconnect with God. And this passage is for you. It'll show us what that looks like through prayer. And then maybe you've been coming for a while, but if you're like me, prayer is hard. Um, it is one of those, I guess, disciplines of the Christian life that you don't get a pat on the back for, you know? It's not one of those things that you're, you're cheered on for, that it's publicly recognized. It's between you and the Lord. But what we're going to see is that it's actually one of the things that fuels our intimacy with God, grows us closer to Him, and it's how we can see Him at work in our daily lives. And so it's to our benefit that we grow in this uh, together and together as a church. So I'm excited about looking at this passage with you all um, this afternoon. So when you think about prayer, what do you think of? What shapes your prayers? What are the things you pray about? And we're going to look at what Paul prays about, and hopefully it should be a little shocking that some of the things he prays about. Wow, I don't naturally think to pray that way. Well, our passage that was just read to us comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. And what we're going to see is that Paul has a framework for his prayers. That there is a structure that guides and directs, that shapes the way he prays and the things he prays for. So if you think about a vine that grows, in our back garden we have vines growing. Now they need a direction to go, or they go everywhere. So there's a trellis behind them that, that takes them in the direction they're to go, and it influences the way that they grow. Well, Paul has a, a trellis, or a framework, so to speak, that influences his, his prayers. And so we want to be able to know what that is and be able to model that as well as we grow in our understanding what prayer looks like. So let's look at the text together. Um, the first point that we're going to look at, well, there's really two main things that we're going to look at that shape Paul's prayers. One is thankfulness. And two, we're going to see that it's the future return of Christ, that he's looking forward to what's to come, and that's shaping the way he lives and the way he prays. And then the last thing we're going to look at, what is the content of his prayer? So what shapes it and what's the content? So the first thing that we see shaping his prayer is thankfulness. So let's look at chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. I'll read it. It says, we ought always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love of all of you, the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, God, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecution and trials you are enduring. So what is Paul thankful for? What are you typically thankful for? If you're like me, my, my thanksgiving prayers are typically around the things God provides like food, money, housing, 
maybe good health, safety. And those are great things to be thankful for. We should be thankful for those things. But as we look at what Paul is thankful for, it's, it's not those things specifically here. What is he thankful for? Well, he says that he's thankful for his brothers and sisters and that their faith is growing. So they're, they're maturing in their faith. He's thankful for that. He notices, wow, they're, they're growing in their relationship with God, and I'm thankful for that. Secondly, he notices that not only are they growing in their faith, but their love for one another is increasing. So the way they serve one another, they love one another, it's standing out. Like this community, this group of Christians, the way they love each other and care for, for one another is astounding. This is, this is amazing. And his response is to thank God for that. And then lastly, that they're, they're upholding, they're, they're persevering under persecution. And what we find from the book of Acts, so kind of the history book of how the church begins, in Acts chapter 17, we learn how this church began, the church in Thessalonica. Paul went there, like he did in many occasions, and he went to the local church, and he began to, the local Sanhedrin, he began to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus had come to save them from their sin. They could be made right with God. Well, what happens? Some believe, and a church is started. But what else happens? Many do not believe, and they don't like the message. They actually drive him from the city. And so what's left is this church that we're, we're reading about undergoing intense persecution. And this is the environment that they're in. And Paul looks at them and says, their faith is growing. Their love for one another is growing, and they're persevering in the faith. I thank God for that. So what are the things that you're thankful for? It's amazing that Paul notices these evidences of grace in their life. So he looks at their life, and he says, they're growing. Look what God is doing. How often do we do that with one another? What would that look like to do that in this local church? We just had a week of holiday club. It was an, a fun week. It was a busy week. It was a hard week. So we had 80 kids from the community and, you know, ran this program. And it was amazing. What would it look like to, to point out the evidence of God working in someone's life? Well, you know, I really noticed how you loved those kids. You had a hard group, but you always had a smile on your face. That's an evidence of God's work in your life. I thank God for that. How encouraging would that be to hear that? Or maybe it's somebody that you see at church each week, and every time you talk to them, they're always telling you something that God is teaching them. It's evident that they love God's Word. What would it look like to say, that encourages me when you do that? That's an evidence of God working in your life. Or maybe it's that they desire to hang out with all of their non-Christian friends all the time, and they, and they can't stop talking about how they're so excited they get to go hang out with one of their friends who doesn't know Jesus so that they can share that hope with them. Wow, that's an evidence of God working in your life that you would desire that. I thank God for that. Or with Alex's baptism. I mean, that's an amazing work of God in her life that she would publicly profess to follow Jesus and that he is her light. I thank God for that. It encourages me when I see that. Or maybe it's somebody that you notice who's always eager to help. Not someone who would just fill, fill in if they're needed, but someone who serves with a smile. Whenever you're asked to help, you, it encourages me the way you respond. It's an evidence of God's grace in your life. So these are the things that Paul prays. And then he tells them, he writes this letter to tell them that here's what I see in your life. And it encourages them. What would that look like for us to do that as a community here at Inspire, to pray like Paul, but then encourage each other with our words. That's point one. Paul, his prayers are shaped with thanksgiving. Secondly, we see that his prayers are shaped with Christ's return, that Christ is going to come back. 
And so the things he prays and the way that he prays is different. So what are the implications of Jesus' return? Well, we see that here in verses 5 through 10. It's basically that God will bring justice. Justice is coming. And so that's one. The first point is that God's justice for believers. So that's in verse 5. If you look back at verse 5, he says, All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. All this is evidence. What's evidence? What's all this? What he just prayed, right? What he's thankful for. Growing in faith, perseverance, love for one another. That's evidence that God's judgment is right on you. His judgment is right in that you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God because of your faith in Christ. You have been counted worthy. You are secure. You don't have to earn it. It's been given to you. God's justice is coming. His justice is also coming for unbelievers. And he says that in verse 6. He says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. How are they being troubled? They're being persecuted, right? There's a violent opposition. He says, don't, don't feel the need just to fight back. Continue what you're doing, and God will repay trouble for trouble. And then he goes on to say, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says that he will punish those who do not know God. At first reading, that sounds like, well, that's not really fair. They don't know God. But remember the context. They have just boldly proclaimed who God is. So it's not that they haven't heard about him. It's that they don't actually know him. They're not, they're not coming into relationship with him. They're not surrendering to him. They're not obeying that message, the gospel, right? So those are one and the same. It says he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is you take the message that they heard and to respond to it. And they haven't done that. Therefore, they do not know God. In fact, they've heard the message and they've rejected it. They don't want that message. What is the message? Well, it's the message that Jesus has come to make them right with God. That although they have rebelled against God, although they have worshipped everything but the true living God, there's a way back to him. And that's through the perfect life of Jesus who died in your place, who resurrected, conquering sin and death on your behalf. Place your faith in him, trust in him, turn to him, and you'll be brought in connection with God. That's the message that they proclaimed to them. And they said, no, we don't want that. In fact, we're going to drive you out of the city and we're going to persecute you. And then in verse 9, it says, this is the result It says they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. In other words, they're going to get what they wanted all along, which is being away from the presence of God. They didn't want anything to do with God, and he says that that's what he will give them. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of God and the glory of his might that they will get all eternity getting what they actually wanted in this life, which was separation from God. So when will this happen? Well, verse 7, it tells us when this will happen. It's an amazing picture that we get here as Paul describes this. Read with me in 7. It says, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Let that image sink in. It's easy to read over 
This will happen when the Lord Jesus, when King Jesus returns, when, when heaven opens and he descends. How is he going to descend? With blazing fire. This would be an awe-inspiring scene. And he's not alone. Who's with him? His powerful angels, these warriors of light, will return with him. And he comes to bring justice. It's what we all long for, right? We all long for the wrongs that we see in this world to be made right. And he's saying he will bring it. He will make all things right. Think about your day-to-day life, the things you read in the news. We see injustice all day long, right? We see examples of abuse that we read about. We see corruption in governments. We see poverty. We see example and example and example of injustices. And what Jesus promises to do is come and make these things right. He will judge justly. Well, Paul is living with this end in mind. He's living, remembering that Jesus is coming back. And it shapes what he says and prays and does. There's a book by D.A. Carson that was helpful for me in in, um, preparing the sermon. And in it, he gives an example that I want to share with you because it illustrates what it looks like to to live with the end in mind. And he shares the example of um, Florence Chadwick. Now, besides that being just an awesome name, she was the one who was first to swim the English Channel, there and back. So both ways. This was in, um, and so in 1952, she attempted to swim another amazing challenge. This was off the coast of California. It was a 26-mile swim, and she was going to go from Catalina Island to the mainland um, of California, 26 miles. So she started out, and she was surrounded by some boats that were there to fend off any sharks that might come, or if she got too tired or needed help, they would be, you know, they could help her. And so she swims for 15 hours. I don't even know what that means to swim for 15 hours. But she swam for 15 hours, and then this thick fog sets in. And she can't see the shore anymore. She grows tired. She calls out. Her mom's in one of the boats. She says, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. She swims for another hour, 16 hours in. And she says, I'm done. They pull her out, put her in the boat. And what she finds out, she was one mile from shore. She couldn't see it, but she was almost there. Well, two months later, she says, I'm going to try again. And this time, same thing. She sets out, she swims, this thick fog sets in. But when asked what kept you going, this is what she said. She said, I had this mental image of the coastline before me the whole time. She knew the end was there. She could picture it, and it influenced the way she ran or swam across the water. I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing picture of what Paul is trying to paint here, that he has the end in mind. Jesus will return. He will make all things right. And that would have been so encouraging for the Thessalonian church who are undergoing intense persecution. Continue, persevere. He will return. So what does that look like? I mean, how would it impact you to have this mindset, to know that your life is secure in Christ as a believer? You've been counted worthy of what he's offering. You've been counted worthy. And all the sufferings that you might be experiencing will one day be made made right. That would impact the way we pray and the way that we live. Maybe it's that you're struggling about the unknown future. Where am I going to work? Where am I going to live? Maybe you desire to be married. Who am I going to marry? These are things that when we put in perspective of living with the end in mind, it it changes the way we think and pray about those things. Paul was influenced by living with the end in mind. Let's join Paul with that here at Inspire. 
And then lastly, the last point is that what is this content of Paul's message? What was it that he was actually praying? So he, we saw some of his thankfulness, right? But then in verse 11, we see what he was praying. So if you look at verse 11, it says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you. So here's what he's actually going to pray for them. And the way he prays, so that trellis behind it, that direction giving to it, he says, with this in mind, what's, what does he have in mind? That thankfulness and the return of Christ. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you. This is what he prays, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. And that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. So first he prays that they would be worthy of their calling. Paul has just assured them in verse 5 above that they will be counted worthy, right? He's, he's already assured them, says you will be counted worthy, but now it sounds a little bit different, right? I mean, is he saying something different? That God would make you worthy of your calling, that somehow now they have to be made worthy of this calling? No. What he's saying is the calling is yours. That's secure. Now live in a way that is in line with your faith. Paul says it very clear in Ephesians 4. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You have received it. Now live in light of that. And so he prays that they would grow in Christ-likeness, that they would continue, in other words, in the very things that he's already expressed thankfulness for, that, he would continue, that they would continue in growing in their faith, that they would continue in growing in love for one another and in perseverance, in Christ-likeness. What does Paul not pray for here? Well, he, it's, he's not praying that they would be successful or wealthy or popular or happy or beautiful. He's not praying that their problems would go away or even that the persecution would stop. That surprises me when I read that. That'd be the first thing I'd be praying for. And I think that's a good thing to be praying for. That's just not what Paul prays for here. Because his, his prayers are being shaped with the eternal, with what's beyond the temporary, the here and the now. And he's praying for them to endure. He's praying that they would continue to grow, and as a result of this growth, they would bring glory to Jesus. That's how this passage will end. He's more concerned about the glory of Jesus in their life than their own personal happiness, and that is so counter to, our, to what we want. But yet, that is what Paul is praying for them, that they would continue. He's calling them and telling them to live what they already are, children of God, and live in light of that. And then we see that he prays one other thing here. So he prays that they would be, you know, make, make him worthy of their calling. And then he says, and that by his power, God's power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. What does he mean? Well, one, Paul assumes that these Christians have good desires, these faith-filled desires. Think about your own life if you're following Jesus, that you have desires that you didn't have before you became a Christian. I desire to read the Bible before I was a Christian. I didn't desire that. I have a desire to tell my friends and family about the hope I have in Jesus. Before I was a Christian, I didn't desire that. So we have these faith-filled desires, and now Paul prays that God would give them power that they would happen, that they would live them out, that he would bring them to fruition. And so he prays that these desires would be fulfilled. Maybe you have a desire to befriend a neighbor down the street, someone that you've seen, but you just haven't talked to yet, but yet you want them to know the hope that you have. That's a faith-filled desire. 
Or maybe it's that you want to have a Bible study with coworkers or classmates. That's a, that's, a, that's a desire prompted by faith. What are your good desires prompted by faith? That you could be praying that God would bring the power that they would be fulfilled, come to fruition. Well, he knows that he needs to pray that God would bring them to fruition because apart from God's work in these things, in these faith-filled desires, they won't happen. And so we see that in um, John 15, 5. Jesus actually says this. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, he says, if you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the one who will bring the change. And then we see in Psalm 127, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds that house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. What's it saying? God will bring the change. And we need to pray that God would bring that change. And then we have the final verse here in verse 12. It says, this is how he closes. He says, we pray this, all that he's just prayed, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So his ultimate aim here is that Jesus will be glorified in them. And so as they're pursuing Christ-likeness, as they're growing in faith, as they're growing in their love for one another, Jesus is magnified. Jesus is exalted. It's reflecting back to how can they do that under this extreme persecution? Jesus is worthy. And it reflects glory back to him. But then you get this little phrase at the end, and it says, that Jesus would be glorified in them, that makes sense, but then that they would be glorified in him. What's he talking about there? Well, here Paul is being shaped again by his view that Jesus is coming. He's going to return. That one day they will be glorified in him. One day every believer will be made perfect. The battle against sin, against temptation, will be no more. We'll be made complete. We will be glorified in him, and that's the hope that we have to look forward to. So Paul says, we pray this. He does not pray that they would be thought of as remarkable Christians because of this growth. He does not pray that they would gain a reputation for their perseverance. That's not what he prays for. He prays so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. The last phrase here, is that all this would happen according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he doesn't want his readers to leave thinking, now I've just got to go try harder. He wants me to live this Christ. He wants me to live in a way that makes me, that's worthy of this calling. Now I just got to go try harder. And that's not what he wants. He says, it's according to the grace of God. It's by his grace that you can live this out. That's how this can happen. It's not according to their own efforts. It's according to the grace of God. It's, 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 it's by God's grace that they have grown in faith. It's by God's grace that they are growing in love for one another. It's by God's grace that they are persevering under this extreme persecution. And he encourages them with that, that it's by his grace. Well, we can see here that Paul's prayer is shaped with a vision for who these Thessalonians will be. He can envision what they, they will be glorified and he prays in light of that, that they would be growing in Christ-likeness. His prayers are shaped with thankfulness and the return of Christ, that Jesus is returning, and he's living with the end in mind. What would that look like for us this summer at Inspire if we did that? 
if we were a community that thanked God for the work that we see in each other's lives, and we encourage each other, I've noticed this in your life. This is so encouraging. I thank God for that. And then we remember that Jesus is returning, that the injustices that we see will be made right. And Jesus will come and reign in a perfect kingdom. I think we'd be a changed and different community. Let's pray that that would happen this summer. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, that we can be connected to you, God, that you created us, you made us, you knit us together, and you've given us an opportunity to know you for all eternity. And it's free. It's not a work that we do. It's not something we have to conjure up within us. It's not just being a good person. Actually, becoming a Christian is saying, I'm not a good person. I need Jesus because he is perfect, because he is worthy. So God, we look to Jesus. He is the one that can connect us to you. God, we praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.